Hey folks, welcome to Paths to Restoration. It's the podcast about spiritual restoration from digital formation. I'm Ed Suzuski, and I'm the author of Reconnect, Spiritual Restoration from Digital Distraction. And I'm here today to kind of round off our topic for the month of April, um, Mourning with Those Who Mourn. And I was thinking about, you know, the barriers that keep us from mourning with each other, uh, the, the things that keep us from having uh, empathy with each other, uh, of understanding, of, of being present for each other in, in their mourning and in their grief. And, you know, the, the thing that came to mind for me, you know, lately just with <laughs> misunderstandings is using Zoom so much. You know, we've been using Zoom for our uh, search process for a new rector at our church. Uh, that's That's been settled. We're just waiting for it to become uh, public with the diocese. But, uh, you know, we, we've been using Zoom for our leadership meetings. It's called the Vestry in the Episcopal Church. And, you know, Zoom is, is super great for sharing information, for just kind of keeping everyone on the same page, giving updates, you know, gathering information, you know, doing kind of basic business. But, you know, when you've got to make a really tough decision, some nitty gritty stuff, whether it's a rector or reopening plans, uh, yeah, things can just go off the rails really quick. I had, you know, I've had a couple you know, instances where, you know, during our, our search process where, uh, you know, people were just misunderstood. And, you know, you could argue about who was at fault. But the, the reality is, you know, we had to spend time uh, doing one-on-one -on -one phone calls and meetings, you know, to, to sort out, you know, what what was misunderstood. And uh, we had a, you know, a church leadership meeting. Um, I can't wait to see the, <laughs> the, uh, the, the minutes from this meeting because, you know, uh, some, something that I said was misunderstood and it just kind of, things just went off the rails. And uh, that was about as angry as I think I've ever been um, after like a church thing, um, at least at this church. <laughs> um, the bar is pretty high, I guess, compared to some other churches some incidents I've had. But, you know, as far as just being misunderstood and, and things kind of going off the rails, you know, uh, from there, just from that misunderstanding um, and us not, you know, hearing each other and seeing each other, you know, I really felt that. I felt that misunderstanding and that, that got me really frustrated. And I was talking to a friend about this who's had a lot of Zoom. She just does a ton of video and Zoom stuff. And she said that, you know, she too felt like, she's had more moments where she's been just angry over the past year uh, because of Zoom and the misunderstandings and the, the interactions and the limits we face. And so, you know, one of the, the really big things we're facing right now is just the ways that, you know, interacting on a video screen with, you know, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 talking heads uh, all at the same time, you know, that's that's not easy. That's not normal. That's not, that's not an easy way to work through difficult situations, difficult information. It's not an easy way to clear up a misunderstanding. You know, we're just, we're living in a time right now where there's uh, incredible tension, incredible pressure, and people are burned out and, and worn down and everyone's got just different ideas of how to be safe, right? We're all trying to uh, figure out how to manage this situation that's unprecedented. Like, you know, we have no template for this. And, you know, the worst part about it is that as we're all, 
you know, managing this in our own ways with our own limits and our own understandings, and our own experiences, you know, then we're like stuck in these video calls with each other, uh, to try to sort through, you know, something else. And, and who knows what each person is bringing with them into that call, what, what pressure or what, you know, what, what exhaustion they're bringing. You know, I, I personally feel like I'm just, I just run away from <laughs> any Zoom call. I don't absolutely have to do. If someone's like, you know, planning like a fun, like a Zoom call or there's some kind of meeting or event or whatever, it's like, you can't, you couldn't pay me to do a Zoom call right now um, unless it was like a client. You know, I guess they, I guess they would pay me to do a Zoom call, but, you know, to do like a fun thing that, you know, like I would not. Yeah, I, I just I, only if I absolutely have to do a Zoom call at this point, um, because I, I just feel that um, that tension of how easy it is to misunderstand people, and it, and it gets difficult. You know, and, and so like if you like dump all that in to just how things are in general in our world, and how easy it is to to misunderstand people, to not have empathy for others, you know there are just these these categories and expectations we also have and you know uh, these biases that we all carry with us that we bring into situations and there's just an incredible uh article to feature in the washington post magazine uh this week it's called the girl in the kent state photo uh, i don't i don't know if it's I, I have a subscription i don't know if it's close to subscribers but it's worth looking up it's worth trying to track it down um but the girl in the Kent State photo, and it's just a devastating, um, uh, you know, profile of uh, it's Marianne Vecchio, and you know the article is titled like the girl in the photo, and I was thinking that she was a college student, but and she looks older, uh, she looks like a college student in the photo, but she was actually fourteen years old, uh, and Marianne Vecchio had come from a, a troubled family and and was basically hitchhiking across the country and had run away from home from a troubled family. And she was just talking to this, you know, she went to uh, Ohio, ended up at Kent State, and she was just kind of hanging around at this protest. And, you know, no, no particular, you know, passionate views on her part, but she was talking to this guy, Jeffrey Miller, for about 20 minutes. And next thing she knows, there's bullets flying at them and Jeffrey Miller is shot in the mouth and dies in a puddle of blood. And, you know, the, their students, you know, all walking around and, you know, the photo is, is so arresting because of her, her expression doesn't match, you know, what other people are doing, um, in the photo, like that there isn't a, yeah, there's kind of like an incongruence of like how other people are kind of casually walking around and there's a guy with his hands on his hips and, you know, people are kind of just all looking in different directions. You know, there have just been, you know, soldiers that just shot, you know, open fire at these students. Um, and she's like the one person who I think really captures the authenticity of the moment of just her grief and rage and, and shock of just, you know, what are you doing? Like, why are you doing this? Why are soldiers shooting at unarmed students who are protesting and it's just a it's just a raw you know moment of of humanity and you know the story though that began to follow mary ann vecchio around is that she was this you know she was this hippie uh you know anti-war protester and you know i think it was something like only 11 percent of americans at the time 
you know, thought that the shooting was wrong. They, they generally thought that the shooting was justified and people vilified this 14 year old girl who, you know, was rightly uh, reacting in horror and shock at, at something so terrible. And so, you know, the, the country as a whole was unable to mourn with those who mourn. She was mourning uh, a, a senseless death, a needless death. And I think that in you know, retrospect, we look back and we can see the, the insanity of that moment and, and empathize with her. But at, in the moment, the national mood, the national narrative was such that you know, people couldn't mourn with her. People couldn't understand why, why she would act like that. It, it was very much a serve some right. Uh, you know, and it was, you know, the people had, you know, people went around, uh, you know, the town by Kent state, you know, holding up their four fingers saying, you know, at least we got four, you know, there was a sense of devaluing the lives of these, uh, student protesters. Oh, so what is that? What does that look like for us today? Like, like, how do we have those narratives and misunderstandings that we carry around? Um, you know, I mean, the thing that that comes to mind for me, you know, immediately is just the, the narratives that have surrounded the the Black Lives Matter movement of of casting them as violent protesters instead of you know these are largely peaceful demonstrations, just asking for you know police to stop killing black people. Like this isn't rocket science here. Uh, and of course, you know, there's always people who will take advantage of, you know, a protest to, you know, carry out a crime to, you know, you know, to kind of dump fuel into an incendiary situation. Um, you know, by and large, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement has been, you know, peaceful and only exploited by people who have, you know, tried to, you know, get their own, meet their own ends. But this is not a movement that advocates violence. It's, it's asking for less violence, <laughs> you know, and uh, I live in a town where there's just, you know, the thin blue line stuff just all over the place, uh, blue lives matter. And it, it just kind of, you know, misses the point. It doesn't, you know, it, it, it's not you know, to say that black lives matter isn't to de devalue the lives of police. It's to say that, you know, we need, you know, if a police officer was killed, the, the police officer would be, um, yeah, there would be a, a investigation and there would be, you know, rightly, there would be rightly be an investigation and, and we would rightly take steps to make sure that hopefully something like that doesn't happen again. Uh, but if a black person is killed, it's well, he, you know, he had it coming. He, he deserved it. Uh, he was, he had, you know, drugs on him. You know, that was all the, the George Floyd uh, defense arguments that he had drugs. And, and so, you know, he probably, uh, he, had, he had some drugs in his system of some sort. So, you know, that must've, then why he died. So, you know, there, there is this sense of devaluing these lives. And so um, it just, you know, reading that it was both shocking and, and also felt a little bit familiar to me as far as just how we, how we create narratives for people. And we, you know, we misconstrue people and, and, you know, people thought they knew who Marianne Vecchio is. And, and the reality was she was just a, you know, a 14 year old teenager who, ended up in a, in a horrible, <laughs> horrible situation. And she responded with, with compassion and, and grief. And, and that, you know, rightly, I, I would hope that we could respond in the same way. Uh, and yet, you know, nationally at the time we were so, our, our, you know, as a nation, we were so blinded by 
these other narratives that kept us from understanding, from, from being present with, with grief, with mourning, with, with violence. And so, you know, that's you know, something to carry with us as we, you know, move ahead into the following months to think about how we create narratives to block out the pain and suffering of others, of how we, you know, blunt that instead of being, being present uh, for that morning. That about wraps up our, well, that, that does wrap up our focus on, on mourning with those who mourn. I'm, I'm working through some ideas for the month of May for some topics to, to cover. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about uh, persuasion, how we persuade people, especially as we are enter entering a time where, you know, vaccine uh, supply is high, but, you know, the actual number of people receiving vaccines is starting to drop. Um, so there is definitely like less demand and we, we need to get a higher percentage of people vaccinated in order to reach herd immunity and to make people safe. So there's that, um, you know, this persuasion, I think is a really big thing. It's something I think about a lot as an author, you're always trying to share information to help people in some way. And that's ultimately persuasive. Uh, I've also been thinking a lot about simplicity. I read a really cool article about how, uh, you know, the person who designed balance bikes, you know, thought about how, you know, teaching kids to ride a bike, it, you know, instead of trying to improve a bike by adding more stuff to it, they took stuff away. And that idea of, of simplicity and improvement through doing less. Uh, so I feel like that's, that's also kind of a compelling thing, especially at a time where we're feeling kind of burned out and, you know, overdone. And I feel like, you know, as a, as a Christian, you know, the, <laughs> the Christian, you know, tendency a lot of times is like, you know, I'm not getting the results that I would hope for out of my spiritual life. Therefore, I'm going to try something new. I'm going to add something. And, you know, we don't talk about doing like less, you know. So anyway, th those are a couple of things that I'm I'm kicking around for a future episode. And uh, you, know, you can always go to my website, um, edsizeski.com and drop by and you, know, you can leave a, a drop me a note on the contact form there. Um, and also, if you're listening on like iTunes or Spotify or whatever, and you can leave a leave a review, that's always appreciated. Thanks so much for dropping by. We'll talk to you next week.